0: Hey, deserving listeners! It's just me today. Today, I had a, an email exchange with a listener who is in a training program in which uh, she's being trained to be a therapist, and she is running into issues of social justice in the program. She is that it seems to be uh, that her, it seems it seems to her that her program is. Uh, entering into a crisis in which the students and the faculty uh, are at severe odds with each other. And the perception is that from the students is that the, the instructors are not being culturally responsive, as we, call, as we say, or they're not uh, embodying the social justice mission of their training program. Now in this episode, I'm not going to mention this program or the school or the or the person who emailed with me, um, so don't get your hopes up there. But um, uh, for obvious reasons, I think. But I will be talking in, in general about this topic because she emailed me and she w- she was like, you know, I'm I'm kind of working up to this situation where I feel like I should really do something, and and I I I, don't, I want to head into it with as much information as possible, and and I know. Yeah, that she was saying to me, she's like, I know that you were a program director and teaching in a a program that values social justice. And, and I, I just wanted to get your, your thoughts on this. Is it okay if we talk? So we talked on the on the phone for a couple hours, I think it was at least an hour. And as I was talking, I thought, hmm, maybe I should do a podcast about this. It's, it's actually a common occurrence, much more common than I think one might imagine, in which students enter a program, a counseling program, with the, with the impression and perhaps the promise that the program will embody social justice, values, and morals, And will uh, uh, be socially just, or at the very least, will have policies and procedures in place that will assist social justice. And, uh, and one of the interesting things about, you know, a training program is there's a hierarchy, right? You have the program faculty and the program director and all those people who are above the students, because it's just the nature of training programs, right? So, there's already this power situation. Anyway, my point is here is that it, it, in my anecdotal experience, these sorts of uh, conflicts are much more common than I think people would imagine them to be. And in my anecdotal experience, the resolution of these issues are much uh, are fraught with failure on behalf of the of the faculty. I my program is ever growing it's it's just it's been growing ever since it it began in the 90s and now the our my program that I teach in at Antioch University of Seattle is is very large there's hundreds of students within the within the master's degree program and dozens upon dozens of, of new instructors now and lots of adjunct instructors lots of courses and the chance that at least one of the courses is going to have some Conflict regarding social justice and culture between the students themselves, or between the students and the instructors, or between the instructors and, and the administration. I mean, all the players involved. There's, 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 you know, a high likelihood that there's going to be conflict somewhere. And as faculty and as a program director for two years, I have been at the at the uh, ground zero of those conflicts at times, and and so. I've had a lot of experience with it, and as I was talking with this this listener over the phone today, I, I thought, hmm, you know, I I I have a lot of things that I want to talk about with this. It's I'm really quite passionate about it. I also get asked these sorts of questions a lot from prospective students, because we have Open House, where prospective students will come to Open House, and they'll ask me questions, and they'll say, like, you know, how does this program deal with social justice, and... How does this program deal with conflicts between st- between students and faculty and 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 so I, I've always so the first hundred times I was asked that questions as I asked that question I was just like huh you know how do I put that into words and and by me responding to those questions and then leaving open house and actually saying huh I, th- I should probably practice what I preach there it it creates this sort of ongoing development f- for me regarding how to create a socially just training program for everybody, for clients, for the community, for students, for faculty, for administration, for other, for supervisors, for, for everybody, for staff. Um, they're often forgotten too. And so it's it's been something that I've developed over time. And I've also seen a lot of people uh, people who I look up to who have done things and people that I've seen people who have done things that have been very uh, much of a failure. And I I see a sort of typical reaction from programs when they are faced with a dilemma that I want to talk about today because I I find that a lot of programs, what they end up doing are the same mistakes over and over and over again, and they miss the whole point of how to create a socially just program now for those of you who don't know what i mean by socially just basically what i mean is like oppression and unfairness uh, things like racism sexism this kind of thing are kept to a minimum or are at least addressed in such a way that everyone uh for the everyone's experience is optimized let's just put it that way that Uh, Sexism happens, and racism happens, and ableism happens, and ageism happens. It, But when it happens and it is uh, made known to people, what's the response? And also, what's the preemptive response? What are people doing to reduce that sort of thing? Uh, How do we open up conversations about it? These are extremely complicated things that... When I started in the field, I have to say I had, a, I had a very rudimentary, sort of simplistic idea of what this all meant, and what it what it is is just so much more complex than that, and nuanced, and um, ever present, and and diffused through every experience, and and, uh, and it just gets it gets weird, you know. It, it, the, some of the the things that I end up having to think about. And talk about I, I just I'm blown away at the complexity as as I try to grasp what's happening. It's it, it's just a, an incredibly complex thing that uh, there's a lot of faculty and maybe me in my early career who are walking around feeling like they they understand it. You know, like they got it. They're like, yeah, I, I do this and this and this and that's okay. And and through my development, I've learned that that that's impossible. There's no way that you got it. There's no way that you get it. There's no way that you're not screwing it up all the time. There's just no way. Cause it's so weird and there's so many things that are happening that you're not aware of and people don't feel comfortable enough to tell you and, and, uh, and you know, particularly as a man for myself and just how much I just don't know that's happening around me. So Uh, Anyway, I sound like a stoner right now, but basically that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about my program in terms of the formal elements that we have in place, policies, procedures, things written down regarding social justice. Uh, But mainly I want to talk about the informal things, and I want to give examples. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're listening to this so far and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. When you become a patron, uh, you'll get an email, and pay very close attention to those emails because For some people, it's going to their spam, or they're not, or they're deleting it, or something. Because we there's an automatic email that's sent to you regarding the uh, how to access the um, the patron exclusive episodes. So so uh, keep your eye out for that. Also, know that when you become a patron, a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support, and you also don't have to listen to the majority of the commercials when you become a patron. So. Do so now. Go to Patreon.com. become a th- This episode is probably going to be at least an hour, maybe more. Uh, it's just looking at my notes here. So, yeah, go to Patreon.com, become a patron. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone, people. Thank you so much for being a patron. Super cool of you. All right, so let's get into this. I'll probably say this caveat throughout, but I want to start with it, which is to say that I know... The more, the more I learn about this topic, the more I realize that I don't know. I, I, there's so much I don't know. <laughs> the more I learn, the more I realize what I don't know. And when I was first learning about this topic, I, I sort of predicted I had a rough estimate in my head. I was like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, give me another few months, I'll get this. Every month that goes by, that that. Threshold gets extended further and further out. You know, after twenty years now of being, uh, or as twenty something years of being in this field and being exposed to these ideas and really thinking about it and being in the trenches around it, I am here to tell you for myself that I think it would take uh, another million years for me to get this stuff. So, everything I am about to say is within that context. Another thing is that this is not my focus I have um, made it uh, my job or my and I also enjoy thinking about this sort of thing so I've given it a lot of thought and I've and I've written a fair amount about it and talked a lot about it and but when I hear experts in this field of uh, culture multiculturalism diversity whatever you want to call it social constructionism, cultural relativism, whatever you want to, there's many different labels, but people who are experts in it, doctoral students who are studying it, when they talk, you, you'll hear the difference between them and me, <laughs> is the thing that you'll hear like, oh, that person really knows what they're talking about. And Kirk, you know, he sort of knows what he's talking about. So that's another thing to think about. The other thing is that it's, as I talk, it's all through language, right? And I sometimes will make a mistake around language, the lang- language is always evolving. And particularly when it comes to to social justice, our language is, is ever evolving. For example, I might use the term LGBTQIA. Well, I'm going to take a guess and say that in five or 10 years, that will not be the preferred term. The the term will have if 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 trends in the past will you know headed into the future in five or ten years the language around LGBTQIA will be different so uh, so one I might be behind the times already and say things that uh, that aren't the uh, preferred way of of speaking about it not only labels but just just grammar <laughs> and and everything um for for example i don't know like 5 or 6 years ago or maybe even more recent i referred to to someone as transgendered as a as a past tense verb transgendered instead of transgender and so i was on i was actually giving a presentation and someone confronted me in the middle of my presentation and said it's actually it's not transgendered and explained why and said it's transgender and so there i am giving a presentation just thinking like uh and you know it wasn't because i was actively trying to be ignorant of it i was just ignorant of it and so as i talk there they'll be things like that also if you're listening to this years from now there will likely be phrases or ways of saying this sort of stuff that are not going to come across very well then that really goes for any episode of this podcast um, you know like uh, I've been doing this podcast for for nine years now or almost 10 years and when I listen back occasionally to episodes from the beginning I already hear a worthy language that I use that they're one of the very first polyamorous episodes that we ever did I spoke the way that I now cringe when I hear other people talking about polyamorous people, you know, anyway, so I'll try to remind this caveat as we go. But anyway, so the the two main things, uh, the two main headings in this talk is the formal elements of social justice in, in training programs, and in, in my training program. So formal elements and informal elements. I'm going to lay out the formal elements just to kind of uh, give a overview of it. But really the most important thing is are the informal elements which I'll get to later. So, the formal elements are really common in training programs. So, the formal elements I'm about to lay out are almost kind of the standard procedure now for a lot of for for most training programs. So, uh, for example, with our educational outcomes if you're familiar with educational outcomes we have a, a number of culture or diversity related educational outcomes for example we have a, a program outcome in which we evaluate our entire program that says the CFT program will demonstrate a commitment to diversity so it's it's very I, I developed these educational outcomes with feedback from everybody but but I wanted to keep it very Concise. So it's a very general program outcome, but, but I think it encapsulates what I wanted to, it, to encapsulate, which is just like our program will demonstrate a commitment to diversity. And that that can mean a lot of different things. And it does. We have a student learning outcome. We, we have five student learning outcomes. And one of them is that CFT students will demonstrate an awareness and sensitivity regarding diverse populations. So awareness and sensitivity. Those are the kind of catchwords that are used in our field. We we use the the overall term of cultural responsiveness. But there are other terms like cultural, the, the older term is cultural competency, which is being mainly discarded now, because it implies, you know, cultural competency implies like, oh, I've, t- I've achieved competency. And of course, that's ridiculous. Other terms that I like are cultural humility, these kinds of words. Anyway, And we have a faculty outcome that says that faculty will facilitate the development of awareness and sensitivity regarding culture. So those are operationalized elements, formal elements of our program. And each of these outcomes, we measure and, and figure out how we're doing with them. And then we report them to people and we try and we use those data to try to improve our, efforts in this area. For example, with, uh, with the program outcome of the, the, the CFT program demonstrates a commitment to diversity, when we ask alumni, I surveyed all the alumni in 2017. And on a five point scale, they, the average, uh, the the average response was 4.7, which is the highest among all the program outcomes. So, so according to alumni and other uh, what we call populations of interest, uh, communities of interest, uh, we uh, really demonstrate a commitment to diversity in our program. And, and it comes through so much so that when we ask people to evaluate us as a program, uh, the highest ratings we get are in the area of, of diversity and culture. And I'll get into perhaps why that is. Um, so, so just a little note on these educational outcomes, most programs, if not all training programs have educational outcomes regarding culture and diversity. But as I was saying earlier, so many programs have problems with this and so many uh, students would not rate their pro their training program as being very culturally responsive. So clearly just having an educational outcome in your program that or a mission statement that says you're going to embody social justice values does not lead to necessarily it happening. Right? So um, it, it's sort of uh, it's sort of flashy lights. It's like, well, look in our mission statement and in our education outcomes, we talk about social, social justice. Look, it's very important to us, but anecdotally I'm here to tell you that that doesn't mean anything to me you know, you can, you can say all you want. And plus, it's, it's a marketing thing to some extent, because uh, programs know that a lot of students are looking for that a lot of students are are saying, well, I really want a program that focuses on social justice, I'm I'm really looking for a program that understands oppression, and understands marginalized groups. I'm, I'm really looking for that, because that that's, I'm passionate about that. And, and so it through that, Demand a lot of programs will start marketing themselves as such, and before they actually are such, you know what I mean. Anyway, so um, now another caveat that I will hope to sprinkle through this is to say that my program is not perfect because it's it's impossible to be perfect. We make mistakes all the time, and we don't always respond well. So it's not a matter of perfection; it's a matter of having which I'll get into more later. So I'm I'm not saying that we're perfect. And I would imagine that we will continue to progress in another 10 or 20 years our program will be even more sophisticated regarding this because when I when I think about our program 10 years ago, we weren't as sophisticated as we are now. So what's the chance that we've reached full sophistication regarding this? Well, it's impossible. So so I just want all that to be you know as a caveat to this as well. Cause I, so I don't want to make it seem like our program is perfect. Cause there's just, there's just no way. And is it possible that other programs are actually doing better? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know of any <laughs> anecdotally, uh, but you know, it's not something that I have researched yeah. and it would be hard to research anyway. Um, another formal element in our program is that we, in our student handbook, we have a, basically have like a chapter on social, on social justice and diversity. So I uh, developed our student handbook a couple years ago. Uh, the, the original student handbook talked about it a little bit, but, but I wanted it to be much more – I wanted it to have a full chapter, essentially. And so in our handbook, it, it lays it all out. It lays out um, our mission. It lays out our educational outcomes. It, it describes in detail what we actually mean by all these things. And it, it lays out different policies and procedures and this kind of stuff. And so, so in our handbook, it, which is uh, often the central document to a program, uh, we, we dedicate a good amount of time trying to explain it. We don't just we don't just briefly describe it. You know, we try to really um, have students understand what all this means. And by putting it in the student handbook, you're basically saying to everyone that this is what you were being held to. So whenever there's a lawsuit against a program, and since we, since we have the largest, so our, my program at any, university, Seattle, the couple and family therapy program is larger than all the other program, all the other marriage and family therapy programs in the region combined. So it's, so we have a very large program and it's unusual how large our program is. And, so, so when you have hundreds upon hundreds of students at any given time, chances are one of them is going to sue you for something. And so at any given time, there's probably at least one lawsuit that is happening. Most of the time, the lawsuits fizzle out real quick because the lawyers get together and, and the, the plaintiff, the, the student who is suing us will realize that they don't really have a case. But every once in a while, it, one gets dragged out and um, they still lose. I just want to say it's very rare that a uh, that a student will actually win a case against us because uh, which I won't get into all the details on that. But anyway, the point is, <laughs> is that when you go through these lawsuits and these court hearings and everything, you realize, oh, the student handbook is actually like a central document that is referenced legally. It's sort of like your contract with your students and you're you're stating what the rules are. You're stating what you do. And so to to commit yourself in your student handbook to social justice, you're you're putting yourself on the line a little bit. You're saying, "Look, this is what we Are striving for, and if we don't achieve this, then you as a student have the right to complain, and maybe even the right to sue us. So, so there's that. We also, in the student handbook and other places, describe various different policies. Like obviously, we have a non-discrimination policy, which is uh, which is what um, a lot of employers or or universities will will have to adhere to if not um, uh, adopt. Also, we have policies for disabled persons, you know, the um, uh, reasonable accommodations uh, situation. And also, uh, more generally speaking with all of our students, we, we try to understand all perspectives. And we try to develop accommodations to help everybody. For example, so I'm going to try to sprinkle in examples here because you can talk about social justice all day, but without actual firm, concrete examples, it's like, what exactly are you talking about? So here's an example regarding our general policy to try to to try to really understand people and, and to try to accommodate to help people. So, for example, we get applica- we get a, a, you know dozens of applications every month. People applying to our program trying to get in. And one of the elements of the application is they have to write an essay. And the essay is a major part of the application process for a number of reasons, but um, notably because it's our program, 99% of what you're being evaluated on is how you write, or I don't know percentage wise, but a lot of your, a major part of your performance in my program is. Based on how well you can write a paper, how well you can put together your ideas in written form, and when we get an application essay that is very poorly written, it is a huge red flag that we should not admit them. Not only because we just think they're going to perform badly or poorly. What's the right word there? Uh, as I talk about writing, I, I don't understand words, but uh, not not only because we. Just want people who can perform well in our program, but also because we don't want someone to get into our program and waste all their time and money and then get kicked out of the program because they're, they don't have the skills to succeed. We really try to avoid that. We really, really do not want someone to get into the program and have to drop out or get kicked out. That's like one of the worst things in our minds, <laughs> whenever we have a student who is kicked out or who drops out we always try to think how could we have detected that person before we let them in how could we have seen the signs that this was going to happen because it's better not to let them in than to let them in and have something bad happen so so sometimes we get these essays and they're really poorly written and we decide we're not going to let someone in well one of the things that we think about in terms of social justice is that some people come some applicants come from a background of poverty or of a lack of education for one reason or another you know particularly just to, just stick with uh, poor people people who grow up in poverty or who grew up in a, a, a household with drug addiction and and abuse These people grow up in an environment that has a lack of access to the sort of education that privileged people enjoy. And therefore, their writing skills are not going to be as great as someone who comes from a privileged background. So in this way, what do we do about that? As, As When we get an applicant who comes from a background of poverty, and has the IQ has a has a has a, you know, good enough IQ, but for whatever reason, they, you know, they're just a little rough on the edge. when it comes to writing, if we don't take their background into account, we would say you're not in, you know, we just say, well, compared to the other applicants, your essay is is not up to snuff, And so we're, we're going to decline your application. But if we know that this person comes from a underprivileged background, we might think, huh, well, what's the socially just thing to do here? Maybe the socially just thing here is to let the person in and then recommend that they take some writing courses, which is, you know, uh, will help them for sure. That's extra work for them, but if they're up for it, then great. And also... As an advisor and as instructors, maybe give them a little bit more leeway. Maybe give them a little bit more time in the first year to get used to writing. Maybe be a little easier on them. And that's social justice. Because in our world of counseling, we need people with these backgrounds. Because if all we have are counselors who come from privileged, backgrounds, then we are a monoculture uh, profession that is trying to be of help and service to all cultures. And so uh, so there's that. Plus, it's just the fair, right thing to do. I mean, if someone, if a little, I, I always just think this whenever I come across an applicant like this, I just think, do I believe with a little bit of effort from us as a program that this person will rise to the occasion. Eventually. If the answer is yes, then I say, then let's go for it. If the answer is no, like, well, uh, if we dedicate a lot of time to this person, I still think this isn't going to work. Then I don't let him in. But, but if, but if, you know, again, a little extra work, can help them then i say let's go for it. So so that's a that's an example of how as a program not only do we have basically a policy but also a practice of trying to understand people's perspectives, trying to understand people's backgrounds, trying to understand the circumstances of people's lives and trying to uh, and and trying to do what's fair. If you just looked at it from a non-cultural perspective or a way that doesn't take privilege and power in, into account, you would say, well, why are you giving this one applicant extra attention? And why is this one applicant getting in? You know, because what will end up happening is we'll let in one applicant who has a bad essay, or, you know, has a not so great essay, but she comes from a background where she was underprivileged. And whereas another person seemingly comes from a privileged background and wrote a similarly bad essay, and that person doesn't get in. So if you look at that, you say, how is that fair? You know, two, ap- two applications basically presenting the same data. One person gets in and one person doesn't. Well, y- we can debate the morality of it and the values of it and the fairness of it for a long time, and people have. It's basically um, affirmative action, right? Uh, but, and we do as a program, we, we talk about it all the time and we have decided that on a case by case, we don't have like a general way of measuring this. We basically just look at applicants and, and we talk about it. We say, well, this essay is not looking so good. Well, what about their background? Do we know more about that? And, you know, we, we, we just have conversations about it. It gets real complicated, but anyway. So. Now is, is that process fraught with problems? Absolutely. You know, but there's just, that's, that's the whole thing maybe to this whole uh, discussion here today is that the effort to be socially just is fraught with problems, just like life is fraught with problems, but that doesn't mean we should avoid the whole thing. And it doesn't mean that we should uh, impose this very black and white way of thinking about things. It, the world is a very squishy, weird place, and um, and so some of you might be asking, well, how do you know someone's background? What about someone who doesn't like to talk about their background, or it's not clear what their background is? It's not clear that they came from a life of poverty. Maybe they, as an adult, they've they've uh, managed to make money so that they don't look like they came from poverty. I don't know. The point is, is that. Um, some people might be asking that, and those are good questions. And I, I don't have answers to that. I'll, we, as a as a program, we only have so much resources, so much time, and we do our best. Is my point. So that's just one example of of that. Also, maybe a more general example is um, trying to understand students' perspectives. Is when when students say something, we try to have a general response of listening well, of trying to create safety and trying to understand what someone's saying, particularly when they're complaining, which I'll get more into later. But anyway, also, we try as a formal uh, policy in our program to increase diversity in the students, among the students and among the faculty. And we define diversity as involving a number of identities, not just race and ethnicity, right? We're talking about gender. We're talking about uh, LGBTQIA status. We're talking about religion and age and viewpoint and all these kinds of things. Lots of different things play into the concept of diversity uh, in terms of identity. Uh, For example, about, I don't know, 12 years ago or something, the program, we realized that we were mostly white in terms of that one dimension of diversity that we did not have a lot of people of color. And in fact, our ratio of people of color to white people was not as good as the general population. So we weren't representative of Seattle or of Washington state. And so we decided, huh? you know, let's try to change that. Let's set our minds to changing that. And instead of just saying, let's change it, we said, well, let's measure it. Let's implement changes. Let's talk about it. Let's occasionally, um, you know, try out some different things. And there was a lot of different things that went into it, you know, measuring, talking, reaching out, reading articles, talking about articles. We are reading all those kinds of things. And different kind of marketing efforts, different kinds of reaching out, outreach this kind of stuff. And long this is this is a long actual report, but basically over the next uh, 8 years or so, we did manage to increase the uh, number of uh, the percentage of people who were people of color. We had a, a 33% increase actually over time, maybe more. And uh, basically brought the percentage of people of color up at par with the general population in the region. So, uh, which is saying something because traditionally in our field, it attracts a lot of white people is a thing. And so um, it's it's actually kind of a thing to, to, to get there. Now, is it possible that all of our efforts had nothing to do with it and it just had to do with the marketplace more people of color for some unrelated reason just decided to apply to our program. Sure. There's just no way to know, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be trying to figure it out and doing something. So um, all I know is that uh, we managed to um, increase the, uh, the percentage of persons of color in the program. Um, <clears throat> another formal uh, thing that we do is we are a AU, we're, we're a safe zone So uh, basically, it's a sort of a complicated thing. But basically, we, uh, as a policy, our program is officially safe for LGBTQIA people. And there are a number of different things that we participate in this program to help LGBTQIA people feel safe. So it's one thing to just say to ourselves, okay, we're open to LGBTQIA people. And that's, that's great. That's a beginning, but you also have to make sure everyone understands you have to do things. So we talk about it in orientation. We have it in our student handbook. We have different signs, signage around our offices that say it's a safe zone, you know, rainbow flags, this kind of thing. And, we also, when the issue arises, we ask people, you know, so say we have a trans student and they are going through something. Well, maybe as an advisor or a faculty, so maybe, let me get specific. Let's say I have a, an advisee who is trans and they come to me and they say that they're having a conflict with a professor. And I know that this student is trans. Well, one of the things that I, depending on the situation, and I might say is like, well, does this have anything to do with being trans? Do you feel like you're being marginalized because of your, of your identity? Now, the student might not bring that up. But the student might not bring it up because the student might not feel that it's okay to bring up. And so I'm trying to put it out there and say, like, it's okay to talk about this, you know, I'm open to talking about this. So, you know, it depends on the situation. But my point is, is that being we we're officially a safe zone. And that means active efforts to create safety, it doesn't mean just saying to yourself, well, I'm a safe person, and people can come to me and talk to me, it means you actually have to outreach, and you have to advertise it, and you have to be proactive with your safety, if that makes any sense. Okay, other formal things in our program is our curriculum. In each course, uh, it's important that culture and diversity are infused within each course, which I'll get into more later. But, uh, you know, it, every course is supposed to have culture and diversity infused within everything. In the old days, when they said incorporate multiculturalism, what that meant was like on the last day of class, you would talk about culture. And that's the beginning. You know, that was at least better than not. But really, what you want is that in everything you do, the cultural responsiveness is upheld. And Cultural understandings are discussed, and marginalization is infused within everything you talk about. Because the th- the thing about culture is, it's like saying it's like saying in a psychology program, okay, I want you to talk about human beings. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, of course, you know, if you went to a psychology program and said, okay, we're we're going to start a new thing, we're now I want you all to touch upon the concept of human beings every now and then. Well, all the psychology instructors would, would say, that's what we've been doing all along. Of course we're going to talk about human beings because psychology is about human beings. So how can you not talk about human beings? Well, the same goes for culture. Human beings and psychology and culture are basically just words of the same thing. We are all embedded in culture, and we all exhibit culture on a constant basis, and we've all learned things, and we've all been socialized, and we all have perspective, and we all have bias, and we all have otherisms, and it's just constantly happening all the time. And to, to say we're going to sometimes talk about it is weird, because, of course, it's, it's, always, it's omnipresent socialization. Cultural understandings, cultural perspectives—it's all happening all the time, and so um, so the ideal is that um, in terms of that attitude from an instructor, not the attitude of like I'm going to teach my cl- I'm going to teach psychopathology, and then I'm going to have a module on multiculturalism, you know, mid quarter, end of quarter, or something like that. Um, that is uh probably not going to work. It would have worked 20 years ago, but um, it's it shouldn't work today. Also we have in our in our program we have specific courses as, as a lot of programs do, if not all. We have uh, we have two courses we have one main one, one main course that they take that all students have to take in their second quarter. We mandate that they take it in their second quarter because it's something that, students need to be attuned to very early. And it's called multicultural perspectives. And then we have an elective that they can take, and um, they also have a general elective. So we also have a, a multicultural track that people can take electively. And also all of our internships, when students go into internships, they will intern at local agencies, and all the local agencies serve a wide variety of people regarding Um, culture and diversity. And so, and I will survey students as they leave their internship about the diversity that they experienced at their internship. And it's always rated really high. Students on average will say, oh yeah, lots of diversity uh, among the clients. And there's really no better way to learn than to actually work with diverse clients, right? So, so that's, so that's what I would also call part of the curriculum. Other formal efforts that we do in the program are um, specific things that I can just think of off the top of my head. Are uh, when I uh, when I became program director a few years ago, and I looked at the student handbook and I finally said, "Okay," because for years I'd been reading the student handbook and was just bothered with all sorts of things. But I wasn't the boss man, so I couldn't change it. So when I became program director, I was like, my first order of business is I'm going to completely revamp this this student handbook. I'm going to write it. I'm going to start from scratch. Um, and, man, I could just tell you, like, the process that I um, had to get out of in order to actually the, – the student handbook was embedded in this really weird institutional process that made it extremely hard to revise and so i as program director like one of the first thing i did was i i had to like politically maneuver myself in the university so that i had full control over this thing but not because other people had um other ideas, because I'm always open to feedback. But it's because it was just bogged down in bureaucracy, I guess is the point. Anyway, so I got my hands on the handbook. And I just and I just spent just just weeks and weeks revising this thing, reworking it, freaking out uh, what should be in there. And it's a very technical document, because it lays out like all the laws of the program, all the requirements, all the credits, all the accreditation information, all the, you know, advising information and University policies, and uh, it's a very complicated document. And but uh, one of the things that I did as I as I was like, huh, well, while I'm revising this, you know, I don't know how many pages it is, hundreds hundreds of pages, maybe <laughs> uh, I think it's maybe uh, 150 pages. But I'm thinking, well, as I'm revising this thing, why don't I also de-gender this entire document. Get rid of all the hims and all the hers and all the she's and all the he's and rework it so that gender is never a thing in this thing because, you know, refer to, instead of he or she, just refer to the student. Or instead of um, you know he or she, say they and make it grammatically work. And that was a thing, man. That was hard. To, to actually comb through that entire document and get rid of gender was, was rough. <laughs> and it was... Um. Yeah, it was tough. And whenever I would ask for people to submit parts, you know, I'd have to comb through their parts and da da da. And so, but I did it, you know. And that that's a formal thing that I did. And I made a a, a verbal policy to everyone to try to follow in that in those footsteps. When you send an email out, try because if you say he or she, the point is is that there are people who don't consider themselves he or she. And so you're leaving them out, and you're alienating them, and you're and it's it's almost a signal to trans people that you are uh, unaware or even transphobic because there are people who actually refuse to use the word they, and they refuse to acknowledge that there are things other than he or she uh, as a political statement, right? They're they're saying, uh, Jordan Peterson, these people, they're they're just saying like no. You're born with a penis. You're born with a vagina, and I'm going to refer to you as he or she, and you're going to shut up. And so, when you say he or she, in today's world, anyway, maybe not in the future, um, you're 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 either signaling ignorance, or you're or you're signaling you don't care, or you're signaling that you're hostile to trans people. So, so anyway, I, I really wanted to make sure that I that I at least reworked my handbook. And then in meetings, I would tell other programs, I would say, you know, um, I did this thing and I recommend you all do it too, to your to your handbooks. You know, I try to advocate for students in other programs as well. Another thing that I did when I became chair was I, so in the time that I've been an instructor over the past 20 years, there has been changes in society. And one of the changes in society has been that trans awareness and people being out as trans people is become it's become much more prevalent in recent years particularly in counseling training programs particularly on college campuses particularly among young people uh, also among you know non young people but there in the last i don't know 5 or 10 years there's there will be there's suddenly like a good percentage of our students who identify as trans or who identify as gender fluid or who, you know, identify as, as non-binary. And, and so suddenly we have to figure out a way to um, accommodate these people and at the same time model gender uh, uh, and uh, social justice. It's, it's a fair thing to do, right? And so, uh, so I, what I was witnessing... As a as an instructor, uh, a few years ago, was every instructor was sort of muddling their way through it. Every, you know, some inst- mo- and most instructors did nothing. Most instructors just would look at you and, or based on your name, would just uh, dev- try to you know figure out what gender you were or how you identified, and would just refer to you as he or she based on sort of common understandings of what gender is. Right. That's that's what most people do, and instructors at Antioch were doing that. There, a, 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 a small number of, of instructors ever increasing had been asking uh, students what their quote unquote preferred pronouns were. Right. And, and when you ask trans people, some of them don't appreciate that approach for various different reasons, which I want to get into right now. But anyway, the point is, is that every instructor was basically the university was, was saying, nothing about it, and then instructors were just kind of making it up on the fly. And what I was telling the university was, why don't we address this as a whole and figure out a way, a procedure so that individual instructors are not, it's not, they're not burdened with this. Now, the individual instructors will be burdened with being socially just around trans and gender, but they won't be burdened with having to figure out how to gather information from students regarding how they want to be addressed and how, and their status, you know what their identity is. And so I was trying to get a way of having this information in the student record. If this, if the student wanted it to be there and then this, then the instructor can just look at the student record and figure out what the gender identity is for that student Uh, or, or something along those lines, you know what I mean? Uh, that didn't work in the end, but uh, that was something that I tried to get formally done. It's just really hard to move a university. It's just, it's, it moves at a snail's pace. And so, um, you know, anyway. So, those are the, you know, a very, what I might consider a brief overview, even though I've been talking for a while, of the formal elements in our program. And I'm, I'm regarding social justice, and I'm probably leaving some things out. But, off the top of my head and my notes here, those those are the things that come to mind. Okay. So let's get into the informal elements in my program regarding how to embody social justice. You know, this is a, a lofty goal, but worthy of striving for. So what are the informal elements? Well as I said earlier, these are the most important because Most programs have educational outcomes. Most programs have policies regarding social justice. Most programs have um, diversity questionnaires and these kinds of things. Uh, At the very least, because they understand that they're supposed to or their accreditors actually require it. So, you know, these things are commonplace. But what really makes a difference are the informal elements, intangibles, things that you can't accomplish through policies, things you can't accomplish through establishing an educational outcome. The informal elements are basically what I might call it is a culture of culture. You, you, You have to have a culture of cultural sensitivity, cultural awareness, cultural responsiveness, cultural humility. It's the most important thing. What this means in general is a constant dedication and striving for cultural responsiveness. And, and perhaps most importantly, what this means is always questioning your own perspective. If you're an instructor, if you're a program director, you're in power. And when you have power, people who don't have power will not necessarily speak up to you. And so it is incumbent on you as a person of power to, to question your perspective, to say to yourself, what about my perspective, what about my behavior right now might be oppressing or marginalizing somebody? You know, what am I doing right now that could be unfair to a group of people? Um that is a very important question to ask all the time and the overarching thing here is that it always happens nobody is not marginalizing somebody at some point <laughs> and let me just say that again or another you know a positive way of saying it is everyone is marginalizing people you can't get away from it it's life is too complex people is too, are too complex. society is too complex. you are at any given moment, particularly when you're in a classroom or you know in when you're at work, when you're um, <clears throat> at the grocery store, marginalization you are participating in marginalization. It just happens and it is impossible to get around. Um, you know, as an example, uh, which is, I think, uh, hopefully an ambiguous example, but I was, I was at the grocery store yesterday. I was, I was walking into the grocery store, and it's a blustery, you know, winter day in the Northwest here. And I see there's a, there's a man, and he is on the ground. He's outside of the grocery store. I'm walking up. He's on, and he's, he's on the sidewalk, and he's, he's on the ground. And somebody is trying to help him, and I look closer, and they're wiping blood off of his face, and and so all these different things went through my head at once. I thought at first I thought, oh this this person on the ground, they're homeless. That was the first thought I had in my mind. They're a homeless person, and they just decided to sleep on the sidewalk, and then I but then i very quickly said oh well someone's helping them so maybe they're not homeless and then i sort of did a quick scan of the person's clothing right cuz that's a a signal about class and about privilege and i you know if if the if the man on the ground was wearing a suit i would have thought something differently but he w- he had sort of an in-between outfit you know people in the northwest dress very casually so um so i i was like you know, is this a homeless person? Is it not? You know, these are all just thoughts. Should I do something, or is it just one of those things that happens to people? And and so all these thoughts are running through my head. Well, there's there, you could you could break down those reactions in my head that I had for two seconds. You could break that down and write an entire dissertation on the cultural significance of and the social socio cultural significance of everything that was going through my head. You know, the class implications, my own privilege, uh, how I kind of quickly distanced myself from this person, how uh, even if I do go up and offer help, how do I do that in a way that is fair to everybody? Um, and and it's, it, it gets really weird. And so, so and how can I put that into words? You know, was I actively being classist towards somebody? Uh, I don't think so. I hope not. But that's the thing. When I asked that question, you know, was I being classist in that situation? My answer has to be, I don't know. And I don't, I hope not, (laughs) but maybe I was, but I, I don't, I, you know, I'm humble enough to know that I don't know the answer to that question. And when you, as a program, have that humility and that attitude and that openness and that acceptance of the fact that we're all doing it all the time, then things tend to work out better. So for example, the student or the, uh, the uh, listener who emailed me and I talked with on the phone today for an hour, what she, the, the problem that she's running into is a problem that I've heard many, many times. Um, from other programs, Uh, not necessarily from our program. And I'll get into why I think our program avoids these problems for the most part. But it's a problem I've heard because, you know, as a – well, I've just heard this problem a lot where – and I've been a student in programs where there were problems like this. But anyway, um, so basically the problem she's running into is there are – There are students who are of a marginalized group. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, let me take a drink of water here for a second. So she's in a program in which the students are a group of students who are often who are traditionally marginalized. They're a marginalized. They're of a marginalized group, marginalized identity. Are feeling as though the faculty are not acknowledging their own marginalization of this group of students. And so this is a common thing. It happens, right? You, you're you a black student, you're African-American student, and you're feeling like one of your instructors has some racist attitudes and maybe, you know, said something questionable like... Um, I could tell you so many stories like you're an African American student and an instructor tries to be down with their language with you. You know, they, they try to say, you know, Hey, yo, Leroy, what's up? Or, you know, or assumes that you watch basketball or something like, I don't know, whatever. Uh, well, let me give you an example from me, um, to, to sort of embody this whole thing. Um, I had a student who was from the Middle East and or no, actually, God, so I'm making the mistake again. He had a, um, has a, he's of a, an ethnicity from the Middle East. And we were in this sort of informal conversation situation. And, and, I didn't know that much about him, but I was curious. And so I just, I just asked him in front of other people. I just said like, um, so, so were your parents, um, born in the Middle East or, and I'm, I'm avoiding this specific country that he's from. Cause I just want to mask his identity, but you know, I was like, are, uh, were your parents born in the Middle East or were you born in the middle Middle East? And, and then he's like, um, well, actually my parents were born in the States and, Um, you know, he kind of described a little bit and I realized that, and this was recently, (laughs) you know, this, this wasn't, you know, 20 years ago, this was recently. And I realized that I did to him what I hate people doing to me, which is as an Asian American, people will ask me like, so does, you know, do your parents speak Japanese? And, and it's an, it's an innocent question, but it's, it's ignorant of how, how that will affect me, right? Because I, my great grandparents came over over a hundred years ago and to Washington state, by the way. And so, uh, you know, my, my family for over a hundred years has lived in the area and for somebody who probably didn't grow up in the area, they probably grew up in California or East coast or something for them to move to Seattle and ask me, and assume that my my parents, you know, j- just got off the boat is is bothersome to me. Now, if it was just once or twice in my life, fine. But when it happens hundreds and you know, and perhaps thousands of times, eventually you're just like, hey, just because my face looks Asian does not make me not American. You know, I am firmly American, my friend. <laughs> and so your questions are are you know they're just they're just bothersome to me. Well. Recently, I basically just did the same thing to a student, and um, it was just so dumb of me. You know, I'm, I'm. It's, it's so normal to make these mistakes, and when we um, acknowledge that and say, you know what, I'm probably fucking this thing up all the time. Uh, People will email me. You know, when when I have a podcast that goes out to thousands of people on the internet, if I make a mistake, someone will let me know. <laughs> and and sometimes it's like, well, come on, but but a lot of times, there the people are right. You know, one time I was being unfair to mothers, which you could say is is either a sexist thing or or marginalizing parents and what I was and a particular kind of parent because I was saying that I I said something to the effect of uh, I can't remember what it was it was years ago but I said something to the effect of if you don't breastfeed your children you're not being a good mother or something like that it wasn't that severe but it was in that direction it was sort of an implied message that I was giving along those lines and listeners wrote in and say hey uh, just be you know I, I have a situation where I can't breastfeed my child and and where's the research on on you saying that that's going to harm the kid or something you know and and I was like oh my god they're right when I and in the moment when I was saying those things on the podcast originally uh, I wasn't intending on marginalizing women or marginalizing parents who don't breastfeed or something you know I I didn't mean to. It just completely flew past me because I was ignorant. I didn't have it in my heart that when I said those things, it would hurt someone else's feelings because it just hadn't happened to me before. I hadn't seen that before. And, you know, breastfeeding is, it's just not a part of my lived experience. And and so it it was, um, you know, uh, I was ignorant and and I was being unfair, and I did something wrong. And so when that per, when they emailed me, I just said, "Oh my god, you're right. That that was terrible. I'm really sorry." Now, I'm not going to flog myself. I'm not going to throw myself off a building. I'm not going to say that I'm a failure. I'm just going to say, "Huh, well that, that 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 happened. I didn't I didn't mean it to happen, but I did it and I'm glad someone told me because now I now I know even more about how I might harm other people and and how to avoid that. And since that time, you can bet that I think about that when that when when the topic of breastfeeding or or mothering comes up. Like that's that's that floats around in the back of my mind that helps me understand how to have empathy for people because that's that's what it's all about. So I'm gonna say I'm gonna say a few things. And I'm going to say like, here's the main point, <laughs> you know, like uh, always question your perspective. That's the main point. Another main point is to have empathy as a program. So you're in power and the, the main point here is having empathy for the students, having empathy for marginalized groups, understanding what they're going through. Um, so for example, I'm meandering, but the person who called me, Her situation was that there were students who were of a marginalized group who were running into marginalization from the faculty and the faculty were treating it like it was just any other uh, conflict, meaning that issues of marginalization and social justice were not a part of it. So instead of, um, it's hard for me not to reveal exactly what this, this person was telling me, so I won't, but... Um, I'll give some examples from my own experience that will help to uh, illuminate this a little bit. So another element to all of this is that, again, when a student complains, when a student comes forward and says, this instructor was sexist or this other student is being racist or this policy is transphobic or I I get a vibe of heterosexism from this program director or something like that. I see a general reaction to these kinds of complaints that is dismissive. Uh, I hear about a lot of dismissiveness from students in other programs. I, I hear a lot of cultural responsiveness too, but I basically hear either a, a wonderful response, you know, people say, yeah, I complained and this instructor was really great. So I'll hear really great things or I'll hear really bad things. I rarely hear things in the middle. <laughs> um, so my advice to everyone, particularly program directors and faculty, is to listen And to try to not adopt a very typical attitude that faculty will develop in any arena, whether it's a high school or an elementary school or a university, uh, where everyone adopts this us versus them mentality. And I've seen it happen. So, you know, instructors, we will get into a room and we'll talk about students. You know, we'll talk, oh, you know, I'm going through this tough time with this one student, blah blah blah. And the attitude that that prevails oftentimes is a very us versus them. You know, someone says, Oh, this student, you know, she turned in her paper late and her excuse was that, um, you know, she was really sick or something. And I don't know. And, and there's this, there's a, an impulse among faculty to support each other and say like, Oh, well, you know, you're right. And that student's wrong. And, and let's, let's fight against that student. And, and, it's a sort of rough, fast way of supporting faculty, right? It's like, well, I'm going to support you. I'm on your team and I'm against the student. And what you rinse and repeat that over and over again, and basically you create a culture among faculty where they feel like there's a chasm between them and the students and and they lose touch with listening and they lose touch with having empathy for the students. And that is, that is a recipe for disaster because the, the students will pick up on that. And when students pick up on that vibe, not only will a lot of bad things happen, but they also f- feel justified in fighting back. You know, when, when you get the sense, like, like when you're at the TSA, for example, when, you, when you're getting on an airplane and you go through the security check, uh, you get a vibe from the workers there, right? Some, some workers are totally on your side. You know, they're nice, they're polite, and they're, they're like, um, and you know, for them, they have to deal with this all day long. They're like, oh, you know, so that water bottle, you have to dump it out. You know, there's a certain attitude. And then other TSA workers, completely different attitude, right? They'll, uh, as soon as they see something wrong, they're, they, they're rolling their eyes. It's us versus them. And you do not want to make students feel that way. One, it's not fair. Uh, mostly because it's just not fair, but also because students are marginalized. As by definition, students are marginalized. Uh, faculty have power, and if you're a counseling program who uh, talks about social justice, like it begins at home, my friend. And one of the things in your home is the power and privilege you hold as a as an instructor, which is powerful, um, because students are. Students in counseling training programs, in my experience, are desperate for approval and they're terrified of making a mistake. And and they really look up to faculty to validate them. And there is so much power in that. There is so much power in that. And I, as a student, have felt that power in both good and evil. I have as a student in programs, I have gone to benevolent faculty and felt safe and heard and understood and empowered and um, you know elevated by their power. They use their power for good. And then other instructors, they use their power for evil. And around them, I felt diminished, demoralized, ashamed, um, depressed, trapped threatened, unsafe, the power that faculty hold is so strong. And so when we are uh, around students, we have to embody social justice, we have to embody safety, we have to embody listening. So when a student comes forward and complains, one of the best things you can do is just listen. I, I, I do this all the time as a program director, as a advisor, as a, as a faculty person. Uh, I actually learned this from Paul David because I would watch him, my my mentor at Antioch. The best thing you can do is say, hey, let's let's meet up and talk about it. You know, Don't just take an email. Say, hey, let's set an appointment. This sounds complicated. Or let's talk on the phone. Um, and then you just stand. You say, tell me what happened. Even if it's about you. Even if someone's like, hey, I think you were sexist the other day. Be like, okay, this, this sounds like a big deal. Let's talk about it. Let's sit down. Your knee-jerk reaction is to reject it. Say, "I wasn't sexist." What are you talking about? Or to be threatened. Oh my God, this student's gonna sue me or something, you know? And and I, I better shut this down because I'm afraid I'm gonna lose my job or I'm I'm afraid I'm gonna lose credibility. Well, all those fears are counter to to social justice, and will end up making you look bad in the end anyway. Because it'll it'll if this comes to light, you're gonna look bad for not listening. <laughs> So one of the best things you do is just say, oh, my God, let's talk about it. What happened? And do your best to refrain from getting defensive, right? This is all obvious stuff, but it's it's not obvious to programs, let's put it that way. And one of the sort of overarching attitudes that I see faculty take is like, well, students need to know their place. I've heard this a lot, okay? I've heard a lot from from instructors who will say things like, Students today are so privileged. These millennials, they have, they just think, you know, everyone gets a trophy and stuff. And you know, these are therapists, these are counseling training instructors, experienced uh, professors in programs in which they are supposed to be upholding social justice. Will say things like, millennials are entitled, and they and they think they deserve everything and they want everything now and stuff like that. And I just have to say as an instructor myself of millennials, that is not my experience. My experience is that when you create safety and you and you communicate well, students don't bother you very much. When you communicate well and you communicate effectively and you have a, a you know, a very non-confusing way of explaining things to people, people don't bother you very much. You know, they don't ask for much because they don't want, they don't need much, (laughs) you know, students, students only start making a fuss when you communicate confusingly, when you have, uh, uh, when you have directions that pull them in different directions, when you create impossible situations for them, when you create a feeling of unsafety, when you don't respond to their questions fast enough. Um, so anyway, uh, this is all another main point, which is safety. Students have to feel safe. And in my experience, you can make a lot of mistakes as a professor, as a program director, as a program. You can make a lot of mistakes. But if you create safe if you create a sense of safety and also a, a sense of relationship between faculty and students, a good relationship between faculty and students, then Everything will be fine, you know. People make mistakes. I, as an instructor, uh, make mistakes all the time. You know, I'll, I'll say stupid shit. I'll, I won't listen well. I'll answer. You know, you know that thing when you ask a professor a question and they uh, answer the they they answer the question, but they don't really answer the question. They think they answer your question, but they're not really answering your question. And you don't want to insult them by saying, um you didn't answer my question, or you didn't really listen to me. Well, I'm sure I do that all the time, you know, and I'm sure students, many students don't feel like they can tell me to shut up and and answer the question that they asked, you know, it happens, you know, politeness happens. Um, and that's just, that's just part of life. But when I have a good relationship, and when students feel safe around me, then that solves all the problems. But when I as a student have felt unsafe and felt like I had a bad relationship or no relationship with one of my professors, the negativity would build in me. I would get more and more upset and every little thing the professor did would get on my nerves. So that's another, that's that's another main point here is that when students feel attached to you and they like you and they feel safe around you and they feel good around you and they feel like you're going to listen to them, you can make all sorts of mistakes regarding social justice. You can say an accidental sexist, you can t- You can say a purposeful sexist remark and if a student likes you, they'll either forgive you because they know that you're a good person or they'll speak up and say, hey, that's sexist and you'll be like, oh my God, thanks, for. I'm sorry, yeah, thanks for saying that. That's where the goodness zone is. <laughs> when you have a good relationship, you make mistakes, you apologize when you know you made a mistake and when and students feel that they can say something and use and you apologize. And that is the good zone. What I think a lot of professors think is the good zone is when you're not making any mistakes because you believe that you can achieve such a thing, and the students know their place and the students. Uh, follow authority well. I find that whenever a program or faculty are talking about trying to get students to follow authority, I find that the reason why the instructors are at that place is because they're scared and they don't know how to get out of the situation. The faculty, um, they're, they're scared and they're, they're resorting to a power play to try to, make themselves feel safe. But what I try to advise people, what I try to do for myself, because I have those impulses too. I mean, earlier on in my career, I had all those impulses. I had had all those impulses to be like, that student needs to know their place. That student needs to like understand that they're a trainee and they need to like bow to my authority. (laughs) You know, they need to stop being so um, defiant to me. And in my later career, I never have that thought anymore uh, because the things that lead me up to that thought don't happen anymore because I can sort of, you know, cut them off the pass. I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of rambling, but anyway uh, and this is another main point uh, and which is that when a problem happens in a, in a program like a group of people like a group of African-American students are feeling as though their voice isn't heard or a group of women are feeling as though their uh, voice isn't heard or a group of men are feeling like their voice isn't heard. A group of Christians are feeling marginalized. A group of Palestinians are feeling marginalized. A group of Jewish people are feeling marginalized. Trans people, you know, when those things are happening, the best thing you can do is not make a big deal out of it. And let me explain you know, say, you know, say three African American students come to me, or, or no, better yet, let's say th- I hear about three African American students who are uh, complaining to a number of other students and to faculty that my program is racist against black people. Well, of course, there's a knee jerk reaction for me to be like, oh my god, that's ridiculous. What are you talking about? Or oh my god, are are these students going to sue us? Okay, you know there's a lot of fears. That's making a big deal out of it. (laughs) The best thing you can do, that I think you can do, and I've run into situations like this, is just to be like, calm down, everything's fine, (laughs) and just and just go to those people, just email them, call them, talk to them, just be like, hey, I heard this rumor, I just want to say I'd love to talk about it, you know, and and then they come and tell you, and you say, oh my god, I'm sorry that happened. You know what can we do? Let's let's figure this out together. Or what do you want me to do about it? What what you know? I'm a person in power. What can I do to help the situation? To me, this is making not a big deal out of it. What I see a lot of faculty do uh, when they're making a mistake is they'll make a big deal out of it. They'll be like, "Okay, we have to now institute a new policy." And and I my God, I see so many programs do stuff like this where they're like. You know, three African-American students will start talking about um, how the program is racist. And the program will release an email to all the students saying that it is unprofessional to spread rumors about a program. Or it's unprofessional to make racist claims about a program without good data. I have firsthand seen shit like this before. And I'm just like oh my God, you're making such a big deal out of it. Like, just go to them and say, what's up? And say, you're sorry. And say, let's have ongoing conversations. Let's see what we can do about this, you know? Um, let's go to that professor and say, hey, you know, these people think you you said something racist the other day. Um, what do you think about it? Um, your thoughts, you know? <laughs> um, that's making not a big deal of it. What programs end up doing is they're like, okay, we have to establish this policy or we have to release a statement or we have to figure out how to discipline those those students or we have to have a hearing or we have to have a mediation hearing or we have to go to our lawyers or something. It's like, stop. It doesn't have to be a big deal. This, this can, you know, we're, we're therapists, we're people, people, we're listeners, we should be able to communicate, you know, this, it's, you know, through communication and empathy, we should be able to see our way through this stuff. Um, so, so that's my, that's another sort of overarching thing. It's just like, just don't make a big deal out of it. <laughs> just, um, you know, now it might become a big deal if if things go badly, but you know, you don't start from the gate Making it, you know, a big deal. Uh, so, the other thing here, after I was talking with the with the listener on the telephone today, was that you you shouldn't make the victim do the work, and you shouldn't victim blame. So, again, just using the three African American students again. So, one of the, a common practice that I see programs do is they'll say, "Okay, well, we have this we have this problem." We have three African-American students who are saying this, this instructor or better yet, we have three African-American students who are saying that these other three white students are being racist towards them. So it's a it's a conflict between three students and three other students, three black students and three white students. And so what a lot of programs will do in a situation like this that I've seen witnessed firsthand and what this um, listener was saying is was happening is The programs will say, okay, let's take the six students and we'll put them in a room and we'll have them hash it out. We'll have them talk it out because, you know, we're therapists. Let's talk it out. It'll be a learning experience for everybody. Um, and, and this will be democratic because it won't be top down. It'll be, you know, six students talking this out. And now this might work, but it might be actually disastrous. And let me explain. When you have a a culture of racism against black people, and that gets infused into a program, that needs to be considered in a situation like this. So if the white students are being racist towards the black students, sitting all six of them down in a room puts the burden equally, so to speak, on each of them it might even put more of a burden on the black student because now the black student has to explain racism to the white students you know um, now this might not be the case for every situation obviously but just kind of go with me on this so the socially just thing to do in a situation like that is to put the burden on the white students if the if you if the white students might be exhibiting racism or a general lack of Of awareness or something, then they are the ones who are bearing that burden. And the victims of their ignorance or of their racism, the victims should have as little to do with it as possible. You know, it's sort of like, um, it's sort of like, to take it to an extreme, a Someone walks up to another person and shoots them in the arm, doesn't kill them, shoots them in the arm. And then the government walks up, police officers walk up, and they say, okay, person with gun, person right after, you know, one person walks up, shoots him in the arm. A guy shot in the arm falls down. The police arrive, and the police say to the two people, they say, okay, guy with gun, guy who got shot. I want you to to work this out' and we're gonna put two of you into a room and we're gonna have you work this out. well, no one would do that right because you're like, well, one of the dudes has a gun, <laughs> and one of the other the person who got shot is bleeding out, and so you, you see the difference here, okay, so when you have three white students who did something racist who they they probably didn't mean to in all likelihood if they're in a in a counseling training program but regardless you know they did something why should the african american students who have been carrying the burden of marginalization their entire life anyway and now they're continuing to be burdened by our stupid society why should it be incumbent on them to fix the problem it's incumbent on you as an instructor to fix the problem And by placing most of the burden onto the white students. So you gather information from the black students, and you try to figure this out. And then you say, okay, and this is what I always do. I always turn to the the marginalized group and I say, what would you want me to do? What feels good to you? I, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to do what you want, but I'm really curious what you would like. Because maybe what they will say is, "You know what? I want to sit down with those three white students and, t- and hash it out with them." And I'm like, okay, let's do it. You know, what they probably will say is, "I, I want you to fix the problem, please." <laughs> you know, you're in power, Kirk, as a professor, as a program director. I want you to fix the problem, and I don't want to have to deal with this anymore. I I didn't want to have to deal with it to begin with. I'm just trying to learn and these other students are being racist against me. And I I don't I just want to, I want you to take all the data, Kirk, as the professor, and I want you to address it and try to fix it, do your best to fix it. And I don't want to be bothered with this any longer. I don't I don't I don't want anyone to know that I complained to you, I just want you to fix the problem, because I don't want to be bothered by this anymore. I just want to learn. And then I might say, Okay, Good. That's good to know. I'm going to go to those students and I'm going in this hypothetical, I'm going to go to those three students and I'm going to have a talk with them. And I'm going to, but I'm going to listen to them, you know, and I'm not going to blast them based on your account. I'm going to listen to them and I'm going to try to figure this out. Um, and then I, you know, I ask the African American students, I say, do you want me to name you by name or do you want me to keep you anonymous? You know, and sometimes they'll say, ah, oh, you can use my name. It's fine. And sometimes they'll say, oh, I think it'd be better if I remain anonymous. Okay, and then I go to those students, the the white students in this hypothetical, and I say, "Hey, um, so here's some things that I heard, and I'm not accusing you of anything, and you're not at risk of being kicked out of the program or anything. I'm just, you know, everything's fine. Um, But I I just wanted to hear your side. I just wanted to have a conversation with you. And um, you know, the people who came to me earlier, they said they didn't want to be here for this. They just said they just wanted to." Have me take care of it, so so I'm taking care of it, and um, and I really want you to know that you're safe to say whatever you want, and uh, but I'm I'm here to to see if there's an opportunity for learning here, or if there's a if there's an opportunity for some change here, you know, uh, and so so that's a concrete example of not making the victim do all the work, and not blaming the victim, and not treating it as though one person doesn't have a gun because in my hypothetical between the white and black students, the white people have, have a gun of racism in their hand. They have, whether they know it or not, they have power and they can cut down black people with a word, with a look, with their privilege. And when you don't acknowledge that, when you have three black students complaining about three white students being racist, When you just act like the white students don't have privilege, then you're that cop showing up and and asking the victim who just got shot to work out their differences with the the guy with the gun. And that's a very important thing to recognize that a lot of programs make a mistake around because it's a very common practice for programs to say, uh, let's talk about it, let's just work it out. And in some circumstances, that's great. You know, let's say you have two students who just don't like each other for for personality reasons. You know, one person is sort of boisterous, and the other person is sort of shy, and they just don't like each other, and they're conflicting. Well, in a situation like that, as long as you don't detect any kind of marginalization or sociocultural power that's at play, as a as an instructor, you could say, "Hey, let's you know, let's work it out." I want you to to talk this situation out, and I'll facilitate that. In a situation like that, that might be called for. But when you're talking about a privileged group harming a marginalized group, particularly uh, some marginalized groups who are very marginalized, Uh, trans people, for example, today are very marginalized. And uh, now, you know, it's hard to measure by degree marginalization, but there are just some groups that are particularly uh, harmed in today's society. And when you are in power as a, as a program and as a professor, an advisor, a program director, you can embody your social justice mission by understanding that in your bones, having empathy for all parties. So in my hypothetical with the three black students, I'm trying to understand where they're coming from, you know. Because uh, if I have empathy for them, then they don't have to tell me that this is the thousandth time they've been through this, right? Like they don't have to say to me, "Kirk, you don't understand. We've been dealing with this in every context of our life, our entire life, and we're just so tired of it. We don't want to, we don't want to put effort into explaining to these white people what racism is because we've been doing it our whole lives, and we're just kind of done. So, Kirk, could you please do this?" I don't make them ask me that because I have empathy for them because I've listened enough times that I assume this one experience with racism is one of millions for that person because I've listened and I have empathy. So, so I try to keep that all in my heart. You know, it's, this isn't just one incident and although it might seem minor to me, when you know death by a thousand cuts with certain things, it's like I have empathy for that. I also have empathy for the white students. I go to them and I I, 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 have empathy for them because to be accused of being racist is a is a you know a very scary thing, particularly for white people. And so I have empathy for that. And so I try to account for that. I don't just say I don't just walk up to them and say like. Uh, you need to admit that you're a racist, or you need to acknowledge that, so I can move on. You know, I, I, I gauge their response. They might freak out for a couple weeks about that idea, and maybe I need to give them a little bit of time. Maybe I need to not say racism. Maybe I need to say some other kind of word. I don't know. But the point is, is it's all about empathy and taking the time, and it's and and trying to avoid falling into a pit of authoritarianism. Okay. So I thought I would end with some, some actual examples from my life. For example, I, uh, you know, as when I was program director for a couple of years, I was the manager of several professors and instructors. And uh, one of the classes that I was overseeing, about midway through the quarter, I heard there was an uprising of the students against the instructor, and basically, the students were saying that the instructor was was being um, heterosexist and all these all those other kinds of things. And so, as a socially just, a, you know, uh, minded person, I really wanted to address it. And uh, of course, I had a knee jerk reaction of just like ah, you know, these students they're just they're just being I don't know um, privileged or spoiled, you know, something. Instead of doing that, I went to the students, I said, What's happening? You know, because I, as a person of power, have the ability to make a wrong right. If I don't make the wrong right, these students have nowhere else to go. And they're totally under the power of this instructor. You know, you have that the power structure is the students are under the instructor and the instructor is under me. Okay. So the, so the students come to me, and they tell me the situation, and I ask the instructor what's happening, and, and it's a very long story, but basically I gave, I gave the instructor a chance to kind of make it right, and I tried to advise her on how to build a relationship with her students and how, you know, things can get frustrating sometimes when you're an instru- when you're an instructor – but it was her first class teaching in the program and so you know she didn't really know the ropes and so I was trying to give her a break but then she continued to make these really grave mistakes and i you know i kept going back and then i just fired her because i just didn't have time to deal with a instructor who didn't understand the nuances of how to build a relationship with students and how to understand social justice particularly in the classes that she was teaching and then, not only did I fire her, but I also had to figure out a way to make it right by the students because we're like halfway, we're you know, toward the end of the of the term with the students, and they paid good money and they you know expected a a, a good class, and so uh, I you know had meetings and talks with the students and trying to figure it out real quick. You know, I just had to d- dress it because I didn't have all you know term. I had to figure this out right away, and so I. And, you know, got a lot of other people involved and got a lot of other people in power involved. And then I went to my boss and my boss's boss. And I, I was like, you know, we got to figure out an answer to this because the students deserve it. And they're like, oh, well, what do, you, what do you need, Kirk? And I was like, well, I always need money. So so give me money so I can spend on guest lecturers to come in and um, and teach the class, essentially. <laughs> Um, so I, I volunteered my time and subbed for a uh, part of the class. And, and then I got experts to come in from outside the university to basically teach certain modules of the course. And, and by the end of the quarter, the students for the most part were happy. Whereas in the middle of the quarter, they were all basically demanding their money back. And, um, now was it completely wonderful by the end of the quarter? No. I mean, there there were tragedies. There, there were things that I just couldn't clean up. But but that's an example of a uh, – there, there were a lot of things that were happening there that I could talk about. But one of the things was social justice, was students are inherently powerless to the situation, and therefore they're a marginalized group, and therefore I wanted to make sure that I used my power to help them. Also, they felt that they were uh, certain people in the class were being marginalized by systems of power, heterosexism being one of them. And I did my best to try to um address that head on. And when none of that worked, I ended up just having to fire the instructor and then try to make it up to the students somehow. This is one of the most common reasons why I have fired instructors, or why I have seen other instructors get fired. If you as an instructor can't manage these nuances well enough to avoid major uprisings of students against you, then I don't have time for you. <laughs> like, there's, a, there's a lot of things that I can't, when I'm not program director anymore. But when I was, I was I was thinking things like, I don't have time to micromanage anybody, uh, let alone micromanage instructors on social justice and on their own privilege and of how to manage complaints regarding privilege and stuff. I don't have that time. You you have to be good at that. And so we would try to hire people who were inherently good at it and really had it as a central focus of their life, really. Uh, but um, anyway, Another example that I can think of off the top of my head is I was in a meeting once with other faculty, and we were just kind of joking around between different topics, and me and another guy, another male instructor, were making jokes, uh, but making it kind of like to the group, and a woman in the group just said, Kirk, you're being sexist, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like in front of everyone. It's like, Kirk, that's sexist. And when I, I my knee-jerk reaction was like, my God, what? Like, no, that's not sexist. That's ridiculous. That wasn't sexist. You're just, I don't know, you're Just something's wrong with you. But later on, after having a very normal knee-jerk defensive reaction, I thought about it and I said, you know what? Although I don't really understand why that person is saying i'm being sexist i have to value that at least one person in that room thought of me as being sexist in that moment (laughs) and that's enough for me like i don't have to i don't have to agree with the accusation but i do have to acknowledge that other people's experience of sexism or racism or ableism or ageism or whatever is their experience And because I have empathy, I don't want them to go through harm like that. And so I will think about that as I behave in the future. That's a very important thing too, is just because an accusation comes uh, at you or at someone else and you don't agree with it, just because you don't agree with it doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be addressed. Because if you really embody social justice and you really embody cultural relativism and social constructionism and, and different perspectives, then the, the, the fact that you don't agree with the accusation is irrelevant. That is irrelevant. Just, you know, uh, because to say that, you know, if I was to say uh, that my coworker was, you know, had a distorted view of, of sexism. I was like, ah, that's not sexism. That's stupid. Well, that's basically me saying I have a, a monopoly on the understanding of sexism. And like I said at the beginning of this episode, if it's one thing I learned is I know nothing. I know very little. And so if someone says I'm being sexist and I can't figure out why that was sexist, I either have to go to that person and ask why they said that, Or I just have to, if I don't have the time or the space to do that, I just have to assume that there's a very good possibility that I was being sexist, but I just don't know why yet. I can't figure it out yet, and that's okay. Uh, Another example here is recently a, a student was being sexist in class. I'm trying to not say too much, but a student was being sexist in class, and I witnessed it, and Instead of requiring the women in the class to speak up, I spoke up for them um, because I worried that the women students in the class would feel uh, afraid to confront the student. So I, now, was it the right thing to do? I don't know. I'd have to go to everyone in the class and say, how'd you feel about that? Uh, So it's hard for me to know. But my point is, is that in that moment, I detected sexism and I addressed it so that other people didn't feel like they had to, if that makes any sense. Anyway, Um, another example I can think of is uh, a a student was being racist and I did the same thing. Essentially, (laughs) this student turned to another student and said... Uh, where are you from? (laughs) This was years ago, but uh, this, this student, uh, apparently this, this one woman student saw another student and saw that this other student wasn't white. And before in front of everyone in front of the entire class, the student just turns to this other student and says like, where are you from? And the student's like, "Uh, what do you mean? And, you know, and the student's like, well, I don't know where are you from? And, the other students, like uh, Nebraska or wherever she was from, and instead of just just letting this awkwardness play out, I jumped in and I said to the student who said the racist thing, I said, I said, "Oh, um, so just to explain to you about uh, why I don't, yeah, you know, why that question that you asked, I'm going to explain to you what's what are the issues with that question that you asked." And I explained it to her, you know, blah blah. blah. Anyway. Um, now, again, as a caveat I said earlier, for each of these examples that I'm basically sh- uh, making myself look good, there are probably hundreds of examples that I could that I don't know about in which I look bad because <laughs> one of the things about being ignorant is you're ignorant to your ignorance and so the amount of times that I've harmed people or not jumped in fast enough or jumped in in a bad way or mansplained something or you know. The amount of times I've done that, it's just, just got to be numerous. I'll, well, I'll give another – I'll give a mansplaining example. So um, I'll actually give two mansplaining examples. One was there's this new instructor who I hired uh, or the committee, hiring committee hired recently, and, and she – I can't remember what was happening, but she asked me a question, and I basically just went off on a long lecture to her about um, about what she had asked me about and afterward and and I could tell that she wasn't really excited about my lecture (laughs) and then afterwards I thought about it and I was just like oh I was probably mansplaining in that moment. I was probably telling her a lot. Mansplaining basically is telling a man telling a woman a bunch of things that she already knows, essentially, or acting like all women are stupid and need to be lectured to and told everything. And I felt stupid, really. I knew why I mansplained because I mansplained because I'm a man, but also because. I, as a new instructor myself, 20 years ago, I felt like I didn't have enough support and I wished someone would have explained more things to me. And so I have a general policy that when a new instructor asks me a question, I really try to explain things to them. And I really want them to feel like I'm here to answer questions because being an instructor at a university is very confusing. It's It's way more confusing than I thought it would be. It seems like, well, you know, you're just a teacher. What's the big deal? There's so many random little things about being an instructor at a university that you just, you won't learn until it's too late or if someone manages to tell you beforehand, you know? So I think that was the reason why I mansplained. And then later I emailed her and said, I'm sorry for mansplaining earlier. (laughs) Again, don't make a big deal out of it, right? Just just apologize, Be like, uh, You know, I think earlier I might have been mansplaining. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I'll try not to do that. <laughs> um, the other example of mansplaining was I was at a ugly Christmas sweater, white elephant party a few weeks ago. And I, uh, someone, we, you know, we all sit down to do the white elephant thing. And the host of the party he omit actually uh, he's been on the podcast before he's like he's like so what he he, so everyone's sitting down and you know it's like 25 people and and he announces he's like so what are the rules to white elephant again and i just i without asking so this is me explaining to another man by the way but without me trying to figure out the landscape i just i just explained the rules because one, because I didn't, I wasn't listening to the nuances of the situation, and two, because I, I, th- I guess I thought that he had no idea what the rules rules were, and then um, after I explained it uh, a bit too long, one of the other guests at the party said something like, "Me, man, that guy really knows how to mansplain or something," <laughs> and. Again, in the moment, I was insulted and hurt, and thought like, "Well, he asked me what the rules were, so I so I explained it. How is that mansplaining?" But then later, I thought, "Well, it was mansplaining because I didn't, I I didn't stop to see how much needed to be explained, and I basically just took the opportunity to." Uh, um, you know, make everyone know in the room that I knew things, <laughs> you know, and and that's lack of empathy and and a result of, um, you know, uh, having a couple beers in me and also a arrogant need that I have to explain things. You know, if, if you listen to this podcast, you hope and I've said this before, you hopefully pick up on the fact that a good, you know. So let's say let's say let's say 5% to be generous to me 5% of my motivation for doing this podcast is because I love explaining things to people <laughs> because it makes me feel smart I mean that, that's just that's all there is to it so when I thought about it later I was like yep yeah, you know she was uh, she she probably could have done a little she could have because I didn't know her she wasn't a friend of mine she was I had just met her that night and she, here she is in a group of people accusing me of mansplaining um, which I think she regretted immediately but anyway um, she could have explained it nicer but but I deserve it you know and and f- how many times in my life have I mansplained and not had someone humiliate me in a group of 25 people you know um, so the lesson to all these things that I've learned over time is as faculty when you get accused of something as a program when you get accused of something or or when you witness something happening, like it's normal to be defensive at first and to discount it. But you, as your adrenaline calms down, you want to come at it in a um, valuing way. And that's okay. okay. It's okay to give someone the floor. It's okay to listen to them you know it's okay to validate them one a very frequent thing that i do when people like um uh, in my 20 years of being an instructor and advisor uh i i've been advisor for 10 years you know a lot of students will call me and they'll be like ah, i'm having this problem with this with this instructor and they'll say ah this instructor did this or that instructor did that, that. and what i have found is The best thing I can do is validate. I can just be like, wow, you know, that sounds really tough. And, and yeah, I think I've been through that myself. And yeah, that feels awful. And yeah, maybe that instructor could have done something differently, you know? And then I asked the student, you know, what do you, what would you like me to do? You know, as, as someone in power, what, what would you like me to do? I think a lot of professors avoid that first step because they're worried that if they validate the student, it'll give the student more fuel for their fire. And they'll, you know, like if a student comes to me and complains to me about another instructor, you know, say, say a student comes to me and she's like, Oh, this, this instructor, he's sexist at times. Well, it, uh, the worry is if I validate her accusation that this instructor is being sexist, that she is going to go around saying, well, Kirk said I was right, and da 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 You know, there's this worry like, well, if I validate it, is that going to give more fuel to the fire? The opposite is true. When I validate it, students, they, it takes all, you know, that's all they're looking for, often, is for someone to just be, for someone in power to just be like, yeah, wow, that, yeah, that does sound sexist. You're right. When I was a student, and I had a problem with an instructor. I found that true to myself too. When I went to an instructor and I, and I was to an advisor and said, you know, this, this other professor, she did this and this and this. When my advisor just looked at me and said, my God, that sounds awful. That, that was it. That was all I needed. I just needed him to say, wow, that's my God. That's awful that that happened to you. I believe you. I believe you, I believe your perspective, I, I can see that happening, and I, I'm sorry that happened to you. And that's all that I needed, and that ended the issue for me right there. So so that's just another little thing that I do. Um, okay, so again, returning to the caveats. I make mistakes all the time, I mansplain I'm sexist, I'm racist, I'm heterosexist, I'm, you know, um, I'm all the ists. And that's because I'm a human being. Uh, I'm trying my best. Sometimes I don't try hard enough. Um, Sometimes I don't try hard enough to not be ignorant, you know. And uh, so as I, you know, all the things that I'm saying in terms of successes, I also have to say, you know, I fail sometimes. And that's just part of life. Also, my program is not perfect, and I'm not perfect as an instructor. And I know other programs are doing very well. I'm, I'm sure there are some listeners that are saying, actually, I went to a program that did this really well. You know, We had a number of professors who were just really, really good at this sort of stuff, and I felt really safe and all that kind of stuff. So absolutely. Um, and I've heard stories too. All right. So that's me bumbling my way through that topic. Uh, let me know what you think. Email me at contact at com or make a comment below or whatever. But I'm curious, or tell me your experience about social justice in your training programs, whether you're a student or a grad. Let me know. Um, was the, did you ever experience conflict between students regarding this? Oh, here's another thing. That I went through, that I that I vowed I would never do to students, which is in the is to use class time to work out conflicts between students. Um, there, there was this one class that I was in where all of a sudden I realized there were two factions of students in my program who hated each other. There was this one faction uh, and this other faction. <laughs> And it was a, it was a class of about I don't know twenty students, and there were like three students against five students, and the the professor detected it or something and said, "Well, let's work it out." And so, so everyone just started arguing, but they did it in this very you know therapist way by everyone taking turns. But basically, they were just all accusing each other of things and these sort of vague references to things and. And I just sat there watching it, just being like, "Oh wow, there's you know, there's this fight." And at, at first, I was like, "Oh, this is kind of interesting." But by like hour two and a half, I was like, "I'm paying thousands of dollars to take this class, and I have to witness these these people work their shit out." Like, that's not what I came here to do. So, that's another sort of thing I recommend considering not doing. Anyway, all right. Well, that does it for the, that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Seattle. It's late. It's uh. 12:30 a.m. so my tongue is starting to become tied. Please take care of yourself and get enough sleep tonight because you deserve it. <laughs>